Do not pray for this people. Do not offer any plea or petition for them, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in their cities and in their streets? Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 16. Do not pray for these people or lift up a cry on their behalf. For I will not listen to them when they themselves cry out to me because of their trouble. Jeremiah 11 verse 14. Then they cried out to him in their distress and he heard them and delivered them out of all their trouble. Psalm 107 verse 6, 13, 19, and 28. First John chapter 6 verse 16 says, If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that leads not to death, then you should pray for him or her, and God will give that person life. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you are to pray for any who commit it. This is not going to be an easy topic to tackle, and I purposely put it off for quite a while because I was struggling through much of it in my own heart. I still am, but the sense of urgency is strong enough that I believe I can safely try to communicate some, at least, of what's going on in my own heart. Some of you have been a little disturbed because I made a statement several weeks back in one of the messages that I no longer pray for America. I need to clarify that statement Uh, because it is still true, I still stand by it, but it needs some unpacking and some explaining. We're told that, first of all, prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks is to be made for all men, especially for rulers and all those who are in any authority, in order that we, God's people, may be able to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. When we're not living in peace and quiet in all godliness and honesty, and we have rulers that see to it that we are not able to, we must be the ones to to be blamed We're not praying. So when I say I'm not praying for America, I must not mean that I'm not praying for all men and for those in authority. I am praying concerning these things. So what am I not any longer praying for concerning America? When I say I'm not any longer praying for America in general, this is what I mean. That I will not any longer enter into any prayer of a general civil religious nature, such as the popular corporate God bless America statement. Which God are we addressing of the many we now have stupidly chosen to give equal honor to? And the bless part, what, what exactly does that mean? Bless what? Our abortion mills? Our fornication factories? Our blasphemy celebrations? our thefts on the corporate, private, and international levels, our injustices in the courts, or our perversion of the image of God through all manner of sexual perversion? What exactly are we to ask to be blessed, and by what God? 
I cannot engage in such mockery of the meaning of prayer or give any place whatsoever to even the idea that when we speak such inanities, we are even approaching to an audience with the real God who is really there. As mindless and silly as the so-called moment of silence is, it's actually closer to a real acknowledgement of the facts as any public display of national religious ritual can be. For if you teach that there is no one there, then his absence should logically be observed by a moment of silence. See, it matches. No one there, nothing there, nothing said. Moment of silence to nothing. Great. But the one who is there is not silent. He says in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 6 and 7, I will not keep silence, but I will repay every recompense, your iniquities and those your fathers have carried on altogether. We entered a corridor of history on 9-11 that we're still passing through. Every event since 9-11 is all of one piece right up till the present. When 9-11 occurred, I warned then that the posturing of our congressmen on the steps of the U.S. Capitol where they sang for the cameras, God bless America, was exactly in God's eyes as the prophet Isaiah spoke in chapter 66, verse 3 and 4, when he said, He who kills an ox is as he who slew a man. He who sacrifices a lamb, it's as if he cut a dog's throat. And he who offers an oblation as if he has offered hog's blood. Their burning of incense is the blessing of an idol. For they have chosen their own ways and their own souls delight in their abominations. So I will choose their delusions and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, they gave me a moment of silence. When I spoke, they did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose all that which I hate. I do not pray anymore along with any prayer offered up to God in a spirit that assumes that God will hear just because we speak certain words and even in some cases end it in Jesus' name. Unless the prayer is one of understanding, a prayer informed by the truth, which therefore trembles at the awareness of how deep we have sunk, how horribly we have insulted the one we are addressing, then I do not enter such a prayer with any spirit of agreement at all. I do not pray any general prayers of blessing on America. I pray for God's just and righteous judgment to come in whatever form that needs to take. I pray, according to Second Chronicles 7.14, that the Holy Spirit would so awaken his people, myself included, to the real nature of our current condition, both individually and corporately, that there would be no ability for us to find any refuge from the weight of it. That it would give us no rest, so that the weight of it causes us to give God no rest, until we are so united with him in his purposes that that's all we care about, all we think about, all we give ourselves to in a united, 
energy of God with his people until we see justice roll down like rivers and righteousness as a never-ending stream. But we are so easily distracted by all sorts of things. It disturbs us too much, see, to feel these things or think of these things. So nothing seems to easily move us to the place of earnest prayer, which such times as we are now living in requires. Till it does awaken us on that needed level. I guess the pressure will have to just keep increasing. So it will. I pray that it will. Not for America in general do I pray this. I pray for the people of God in America. For when we are fully awake, God can have his way with us. And if he has his way with us, we will then rise up a great army of light and salt that will automatically begin to bring change for good, not necessarily through political power, but even more to the point, through the manifestation of the kingdom of God, through us to the nation. But to pray for the nation, for its protection, its prosperity, its happiness? No, no way. No way do I ask my Father to bring blessing on this morbid, haunted, materialistic, blasphemous harlot of a nation that we have become. And the only mindset more dangerous than the open hostility of the left against the things of God is the vapid pseudo-religious idolatry of the right which celebrates God, little g, made in our image with an American flag hanging behind his throne while we ignore the real God and dishonor his word in every way imaginable. And for the people of God, and I say this carefully and I don't want it to be discouraging, but let's examine it. I don't know if we understand prayer. I've addressed this previously in other messages like one called a kingdom of priests, which you can obtain from our MP3 file. But let me try to explain for a moment why God commands us to pray for all men, especially those who are in authority. This is a very large subject that would easily take up all our time, and I will be restating aspects of it in future messages till we begin to hopefully get it. But for now, let me try to describe how God intended the fabric of the universe to work. His sovereign rulership over all creation is stated over and over in Scripture. But just as clearly, there is also stated an element of human cooperation that he sovereignly wove into the creation so that he could call us into a freely given partnership with him. This is how he intended to train us in order to bring us into mature spiritual power of sonship under his wisdom and love. The trendy word for this is synergy. It's a trendy word. I don't like trendy words, but I I need you to understand this word. What is synergy in this context? Synergy is when two separate entities join together in order to produce a third entity that could not have come into being without the willing partnership of the original two entities. Are we saying there are things God cannot do without us? Well, yes, we are. 
God cannot do a lot of things. He cannot sin. He cannot lie. He cannot fail. He cannot make a rock so big that he can't pick it up. He cannot make nonsense. God can do all that is doable. He cannot do anything that is not doable. And he must consider that making us into his sons and daughters who are to grow up into a place of co-rulership under his guidance for the future rulership of the universe, he must consider that that cannot ever happen if he does everything totally by his own sovereign command. So he purposefully left a degree of freedom in the fabric of the created universe, which is left to our choosing, contrary to some very bad theologies that end up teaching little more than an Islamic form of total determinism, the real God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of creation, made space for us to be able to choose or not to choose to partner with him in bringing forth his goodness into the earth. Does this sound familiar to any of us? When you pray, pray like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why pray? Obviously, God is not asking us to talk him into things. He's not asking us to inform him of things he doesn't know. So what is he doing when he calls us to pray? Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into the harvest. Or, as we've already stated, pray for your enemies. Or, the scripture that we referred to a while ago, it's his will that you pray for all men, especially those in authority. He's asking us to make ourselves available to him as the earthly human member of the synergy along with him. What is the third thing that will come from this synergistic partnership that could not exist without the original two partners working together? The results of that prayer is simply that it will not happen unless we willfully join ourselves in relation to God in the coming of his kingdom through prayer. So you're not informing God of anything. You're providing God with the human element that he wants in order to bring forth the human rulership experience necessary so that he can have sons and daughters in the universe who have been trained by experience to give birth to eternal issues through prayer. And I say this reverently, Obviously, God cannot produce that by himself. If you don't do your part, the synergy will never occur. And something that should have been will never be. That's not to make us fearful, but it should awaken us to huge opportunities and some degree of responsibility. Now, This takes us to a question. What things are set in cement in the spirit realm and what are open? For instance, the return of the Lord Jesus is a set event and it's a set time in the Father's mind. Jesus says so in Acts chapter 1 verse 7. 
Yet in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 12, we are told that we hasten the coming of the day of God when we synergistically engage with him in any kingdom concerns. See? It's a set thing in the eternal realm, but it works out on earth through our human participation. The set event will be fulfilled exactly as God decrees and desires, and nothing can ultimately change that, but a lot is left to what you might call chance, for lack of a better word, on the human earthly level, and what makes all the difference between, say, a a bloodbath in England as bad as the one in France was the obedience of John Wesley and the prayers of William Wilberforce that saved England from the horror of a, a revolution exactly like the one that did occur in France. England could have been France, except for the synergistic power of the Holy Spirit calling his people into the work that saved England and spread around the world and broke the power of slavery and many other things. Did God want France to have a bloodbath? No. But there was no synergistic intercession. Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap and make up the hedge so that I might not destroy the land, but I could find not one. How many of what happens is the result of God's sovereign providence and how much is the result of synergistic prayer or the absence of it? Only God knows the answer to that. But we do know enough to see when it's time to go to war in prayer and stand for God's purposes to be done. We know that. We don't have to know everything to know that. We must get totally free of any idea that we are having to talk God into doing what he already clearly reveals is his will. We give back up to him in his word, which he has revealed to us, by praying that word back to him, thanking him for his word, and crying out to him for him to bring to pass what he has promised in his word. Daniel chapter 9 and 10. Nehemiah chapter 1. Ezra chapter 8 and 9 are just some examples. The prophetic gifts are always in need of being discerned, corporately examined, and prayerfully considered. We must not take them at face value, and we must never jump to conclusions and presumptuously build an entire structure of doctrine or behavior or action based on a prophetic word. But the prophetic is the Holy Spirit's way of helping us move synergistically into position to move with God in this kind of prayer. Uh, You know, Paul says in several places, prophecy has to be judged. There is the revelation gift of prophecy that may be for a group or even for an individual. You see, for instance, in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, there's the prophetic preaching anointing that is an ongoing rebuke of nation's sins or, or group's sins or even individual sins and the warnings of the end result if there's no repentance, which is seen in most of the Hebrew scriptures. But Paul says these things have to be judged 
The word judge doesn't mean we're critiquing them as if we are above them, but it does mean that we take the scriptures and we we again synergistically discern together with the Holy Spirit's direction what these things mean. One of my favorite phrases in the book of Acts is where the apostles say, it seemed right to us and to the Holy Spirit. It seemed right to us and to the Holy Spirit. And so it may have predictive elements in it that are mixed in, but the main heart of true prophetic preaching or prophetic or prophesying is the call to return to God and a revelation of the heart of God. We need all these different kinds of the prophetic to be operating, but we have to also remember that Paul tells us not to despise prophecy. Why would he have to tell us not to despise prophecy? Well, evidently, because as many of us know from experience, it can become despicable. Now that can take us off our main subject, and so that's all I'll say about that. When it comes to praying for America wisely and with accuracy, we need to be open to the revelation gifts, such as dreams and visions, words that people receive, but we should never make any of those more than a secondary message that should always affirm what we see in Scripture. Still, common sense should remind us that some things are not written in Scripture. For instance, if you have a call to the mission field in some part of the world, there's no Scripture that's going to spell out for you, you're to go here, you're to go there, and you're to go on such and such a date. Uh, Even if there was such a Scripture that you found that seemed to point that way, you would need to carefully interpret it and do so with the help of spiritually minded mature people. We need strong prophetic preaching. We need men and women who see from the scripture the heart of God for a nation or for a church and who communicate that under a strong anointing of the fear of the Lord. So I'm not trying to be critical or dismissive of any of the real gifts when I say that we sometimes get despicable with prophecy. We get, we get wrestling with it and we come to despise it so we we just say oh it just means preaching it just means preaching a sermon well it obviously doesn't mean preaching a sermon and it's amazing how often those who claim to be so careful to take the scriptures at uh, at their word and uh, to, to be sola scriptura can just disregard what scripture says and shrink it down to a convenient sermon The prophetic obviously has a supernatural revelatory element to it that goes beyond preaching a sermon. And that moves me to my next point, that we must not despise prophecy. People send me a lot of stuff. I appreciate most, almost all of it. I glean from everyone some part of what I think I need to hear. I I pray about it. What I can't quite see or accept, I put on the shelf. Rarely, but sometimes, I get stuff. And I pretty much send it to cyber hell. But when it comes to our present condition as a nation and the impending presidential election, I have received some pretty strange mixtures of emails, all claiming prophetic authority the end of the world in 2017. Trump is God's chosen man in 2017. 
Trump destroys America in 2017. And of course, you would expect someone to come up with this one. Number 666 shows up often in the Trump family tree. And then finally, elections canceled, martial law imposed by 2017. I think we can pretty clearly be sure that the world will not end in 2017. So let's lay that one aside. I think we can be much less certain that there will not be some form of martial law imposed because of the potential, very real and large potential, of an explosive, planned, militant, public conflict stirred into uh, a frenzy. When you understand that the left operates in chaos, hatred, and lawlessness, as has been manifested already in several places in the United States, uh, reminding us of what it was like in the 60s, as a general means of accomplishing their goals, they do this when it is almost a given that some very dangerous events will occur in the face of the coming election. It just seems obvious. It doesn't take a profit to figure that out. Do I think it might end up with a decree that the very elections could be stalled in order for Obama to find an excuse to stay in office? Well, not that it matters what I think, but No, I don't think that will happen. Do I put it past Obama to try to create such a scenario? No, not at all. I don't put anything past him. But it doesn't take a profit to see that. The prophetic is not focused on what is happening politically for the sake of any person or party or even ideology or even for the sake of a nation. The prophetic is speaking to God's people of and from God's heart about what's on his agenda. So if the prophetic word is given to offer insight, warning, or calling us to intercessory prayer, it will all be about God bringing his kingdom further into the earth. That brings us to the hard question that's on so many people's minds now. How do we deal with these and many other prophetic words and warnings? How do we rightly pray for a Barack Obama or a Hillary Clinton or those who are so manifestly, radically, openly in opposition to all things that God and his people uh, love and care about. How do, we, how do we pray? We need to be humble and not snide. That's a challenge for me all the time. We need to pray for discernment and interact with other Christians, and truly be willing to listen to how they may see things that are a little different from the way we see them. I'm not talking about interacting with people who come from a very strong point of view uh, so as to support the Democrat camp. For unless a person is truly deceived, he or she cannot any longer ignore the fact that the the Democratic Party is now the Communist Party of America. If you go to the website of the Communist Party of America, yes, they they have a website. You will not be able to tell the difference between the Communist Party website and the Democratic Party website. They're the same platform, completely. So if you somehow can find a way to reconcile following Jesus 
with reconciling that to the murder of babies, the continued disenfranchisement of the true poor, the celebration of every form of sexual perversion known to man, the open hatred of the gospel, the corporate calling upon the name of Satan in their conventions, the destruction of the family, the undermining of both the military and law enforcement, and every social order, the purposeful inciting of violence, and the calling for the end of the nation and the dissolving of our borders and the dissolving of the Constitution, then you are truly a deceived Christian. Now, is the Republican Party then the divine God-given option? No, indeed. They're worse than the Democrats, for the Democrats are at least not hypocrites. They happily will tell you what they are and who they are and what they stand for. The Republicans claim to be in opposition to that agenda, but as all can see, simply by looking, they are liars. They are mostly cooperating with the agenda of the left for their own personal gain. And only a few are trying, and they are trying, and they need our prayers and our support. Only a few Republican senators and congressmen are trying to stand for truth and right in the Republican leadership, uh, in the face of the Republican leadership that plays the harlot with Obama at every opportunity. Come back with me for a moment to the question of synergy and intercession. What is your prayer temperature concerning these issues? How do you how do you pray? Do you pray? Well, I'm sure you do. But is there ever a danger of becoming so war-weary or jaded by the ongoing idiocy that seems to never end that you become listless, then slowly prayerless? This is always a danger in war. There are three categories of prayer in the midst of the battle for the soul of a nation that I want to look at very briefly before we get into our main point of this message. I want to talk about victory in the face of when things could go either way. Victory in the balance. Then I want to talk about victory when it seems to be out of reach and gone. And then I want to talk about victory when it is out of reach and it is gone. First, victory in the balance. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 15 through 19. You, you may be familiar with it. It's a strange story. And we Westerners have a hard time with these Middle Eastern strange stories that we find in the Bible. So we either ignore them or we find some strange, meaningless interpretation of them. But basically this is what is happening. The prophet Elijah is being approached by the king of Israel concerning his grief over the approaching battle with the Syrians. He goes to Elisha and he asks for Elisha's blessing and help and guidance. And Elisha says to him, you will smite the Syrians in Aphek till you have consumed them. Now pay attention to that phrase. You will smite them till you have consumed them. Then he said, take the arrows out of your scabbard. And so he took them out 
of the scabbard, and Elisha said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And the king struck the ground once, then twice, then the third time, then he stopped. Elisha became very angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have beaten Syria till you consumed them. God's plan. But now, my comment, your lack of synergistic commitment to God's plan, you will only beat them three times. There's no way to interpret that story except, I think, the way we are seeing it clearly laid out. Elisha prophesies the word of the Lord, which is, you will consume the Syrians completely. That's the word of the Lord. But then he has the king pull out the arrows from his scabbard and he says, strike the ground with it. There's an energy in Joash that he's looking for to see if he's up to the call of God to fulfill the prophetic word. And it's not there. There is no righteous energy there. Because for one thing, Joash is an ungodly, wicked, compromising uh, man. And so Elisha becomes very angry. The word there is very angry. He's not just upset. He's very angry. You should have struck the ground five times or six times. Then you would have fulfilled the word I just gave you. There is a synergistic call for us to cooperate with the things of God. That's when the battle, the battle is in the balance. It could go either way. That's where we are now. That's where we are now. I want to look at an, another one that's not quite so potentially encouraging. What happens when victory seems gone? It seems already gone. And judgment is coming. Second Kings chapter 22, verses 11 through 20. This is some 200 years after this moment with Elisha. King Josiah one of my favorite people in the Old Testament. When King Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, which had been missing for years, he tore his clothes in great sorrow and commanded his men to go inquire after the Lord and on behalf of himself and on behalf of the people and on behalf of all of Judah because of the words he had just heard from the book of the law. For great wrath from the Lord is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed or observed all that is in the book of the law. So they went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, in Jerusalem in the inner court. Pay attention to that, ladies. Uh, you were... Uh, told maybe somewhere that you have no ministry except to make cakes and feed men at men's breakfasts in church. Hulda wouldn't agree with you. She said to them, the Lord says, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants. All the words that are written in the book of the law shall I bring against them because they forsook me and burned incense to false gods and provoked me with anger so that all the work of their hands were, were provoking me to anger. 
so my anger shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of me, says the Lord concerning the words which he heard, tell him this, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place, that it will become a desolation and a curse, so that you rent your clothes and you wept before me. I also have heard you, says the Lord. I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall go to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all this evil which I will bring upon this place. Now, compare that first scenario to the second one. In the first scenario, there was a potential for moving the battle in a good direction, even a totally victorious direction. But because of a lack of full presence and commitment on the part of the human element in the synergy, God says, what I intended for you will now not happen. You'll win some battles and you'll make some progress. See, this is what I see in us. We've won some battles and we've made some progress. But in between winning a few battles and making some progress, we have ourselves compromised with the very evil we claim to be battling. And so we have not been able to bring that full victory. The second scenario, things are much darker now. So 200 years later, Judah and Israel have gone into a deeper level of darkness. And uh, the word of the Lord has been hidden. The, The book of the law gets discovered. And as it's being read in front of King Josiah, whose heart is right before the Lord, he begins to weep and cry out to God and tear his garments. And he begins to ask for God's mercy. And you know the story. Huldah the prophetess says to him, Because you have done this, this judgment will come. It's inevitable, but you and uh, you will will not see it. You will go to your grave in peace. He went to his grave as a result of being injured in battle, but he went to his grave in peace with the Lord. But then there's a third scenario, the worst of all. What happens when victory is not only in the balance, not only out of reach, but only for those who humble themselves. What happens when there's no hope? It's gone. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14 says, Though Noah, Daniel, and Job, if they were in the land, they would not deliver anyone but their own souls by their righteousness, says the Lord. And you shall be comforted, he says in verse 23. It will comfort you, Ezekiel, when you see their evil deeds and their evil ways. You will know and have understanding why I sent judgment, that it was for a good reason, says the Lord. What a terrible set of circumstances it must have been that would cause God to say, you will actually be comforted when you see how they behave, and how they live, and you will amen the judgment that is coming. It will comfort you to see that I am a God who cannot, uh, I cannot stand by and let this evil go on any longer. Now, even in the face of this terrible third one, it's not hopeless. 
please keep in mind, in spite of these terrible temporal judgments, they are still for the purpose of a hopeful, eventual restoration and redemption. Well, this brings us to our final issue in this study. I've said all this to hopefully set us up for this question. How should a godly person vote in this coming election for President of the United States? Now, before you allow yourself, or I allow myself, to give in to personal points of view that take us emotionally to a place where we then refuse to listen to any other person's point of view, just stop with me for a moment and consider these facts. First fact, the failure of the church to steward elections has continually given evil a huge platform. Where were we in 1973? I know where I was. I know the sin in my life. I know the compromise and evil mixture in my life in 1973 when it didn't even move my heart at all the day Roe versus Wade made the murder of babies the law of the land. Oh, I was going to Bible studies. I was leading Bible studies and I was preaching and I was doing all kinds of Jesus movement stuff. Me and a lot of other Jesus movement people. It was our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. They're the only ones that stood. They're the only ones that stood in the gap while the Protestants were waiting for the rapture. Second point. Otherworldliness has deceived us into passivity. I just made that point by mentioning that we were all waiting for the rapture. Don't misunderstand my reference to the rapture as a negative thing. The coming of the Lord is a precious truth. It's our blessed hope. But an irresponsible uh, turning of our hearts toward escapism in the name of end times theology, that's a whole other story. Point number three. Because of this passivity, we now have been brought to a point of two distressing choices, neither of them trustworthy in most people's eyes. Two distressing choices for President of the United States. Now, here's a few other issues we need to just, I'm just bringing them up for you to consider and think about. People say this, and I understand it. I've said it myself. We're sick to death of voting for a lesser of two evils. If I can't have a genuine candidate that I can truly believe in, I, I'm just I'm going to give up voting. Okay, think about this now. Think, please think. Don't feel. I don't want. I don't care what you feel. I want to know what you think. We allowed our country to get where it is now. We did it. It happened on my watch. It happened on your watch. If you are truly honest with yourself and before the Lord, ask yourself this question. What aspect of your lifestyle over the past years, far back as you need to go, what aspect of your lifestyle can you admit either contributed to our present evil, or at least failed to act against 
our present evil. Just think about it. You might want to turn this message off and really, seriously, think about what I just asked. That being said, if we have been brought where we are now by our failure and therefore by the judgment of God on us for that failure, then we must ask if the two options set before us are set before us by the hand of Almighty God. Obviously, the answer is yes. God has to be, he's the ruler. He's the one who raises up rulers and puts down rulers. Now, the next thing you've got to consider, again, please think with me. God told Israel when they were in a backslidden condition that brought them under a progressive judgment. And if you don't understand that America is under a progressive judgment, we're not looking for judgment to come. We are under judgment. When you have a nation that literally, uh, against all common sense and the simple clarity of thought that has kept civilization in line for 7,000 years starts interfering with who, who and where people go to the bathroom, you're under judgment. When you have a government, a government leadership that is that sick, that stupid, that perverse, and you remember that they are the reflection of the people who elected them, we are already under divine judgment. But here's the question. God told Israel when they were under their progressive judgment that there was no option for them. They had two choices while they were under that judgment. Their judgment was either die or submit to the conditions they were now in. There's an element right now uh, that I find actually more dangerous than that element of the left that is so obviously godless. And that is a godless but religious right-wing republicanism that thinks by our own prowess we will take back America, quote-unquote. It will never happen because it has no repentance in it. And so what God is saying to us is, possibly, again, I'm just asking you to consider what I'm saying. I've given you two choices. The obvious choice on the left and the obvious choice on the right. The one on the right, the one on the left, some people think are tied at the tail. They may be. I, I fully understand your concerns. So people have questions like this. Well, what, what if I just don't vote? Just don't vote. And Hillary gets elected because I didn't vote. That's exactly what happened in Houston, Texas. The church sat back and didn't vote. 10% of the city of Houston voted in the lesbian mayor who then tried to overturn the church and control the church. We're ha- we had it happen here in Charlotte, right? And that's what we're dealing with right now in North Carolina. Uh, with a, a pro-leftist, lesbian-supportive mayor who's voted in along with a predominantly leftist city council 
who decided, like all leftists, to disregard the state constitution and pass laws in their little tiny circle of influence that they expected to be dominant over the whole state. And since they had the the support of the other leftist mechanisms of uh, Obama's White House and Hollywood and a various other number of uh, corporations like Target and many others I won't waste time naming, uh, it's become a national issue. Is it going to be a national an, an issue enough in the national mindset to awaken people to action? I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of this. I'm not going to give you the clear-cut answer, but I want you to consider the question. If God is under, if we're under His judgment, and He's saying you brought yourself into this place, you think I'm going to give you a Bible-believing, uh, gospel-preaching? tongue-talking, demon-chasing president? For what? I'm not going to give you such a man as that. What if he's saying, I'm going to give you a man who is predominantly pagan, and that man is going to be my tool? Not my choice in the sense of a godly man. Cyrus was not a godly man. He was a pagan king, but he was God's chosen spoken prophetically 300 years before he was born, to be the tool in God's hands to make the way for the return of the people of Judah to restore the broken city of Jerusalem. He was God's instrument. Why? Because it was the instrument God needed for the time. If synergy is operative in other areas other than prayer, and I think it is, then God raises up certain people and molds them over time. God did that with with Pharaoh. He molded him over time. Pharaoh then could have been God's instrument in obedience to God, or he could have been God's instruments in rebellion against God. He synergistically chose to be in rebellion against God, and so God manifests his glory by judging Pharaoh. C.S. Lewis said, those who will not be God's sons will be his tools. The other what if is this. What if, and again, I hope that you're prayerfully considering these things. I'm not going to be able to give you answers. I'll give you more questions than answers, but they're important questions, and you'll never get the answers if you don't consider the questions. What if God is saying, I've raised up Donald Trump at this time in history because he will have the tools necessary to expose the evil on the left, build the strength on the right necessary to counteract the evil of the past decades? And what if also in the, possi- in, in the, in the outflow of this event, He does what Thomas Becket did under the reign of Henry II in England. In in the 12th century, Becket was King Henry's partner in partying and partner in crime. Some question that, but it seems to be true. So he wanted Becket to become Archbishop of Canterbury because then he would be a useful instrument in Henry's control of the nation. What he didn't reckon on was when the mitre of the bishopric came down on Thomas's head, 
So did the anointing of God. And Thomas became a, a standard for righteousness and truth against Henry II. So much so that he was murdered eight years later in the cathedral. What if Trump ends up taking seriously that this may be a call of God on him for such a time as this and becomes God's hammer? I know some of you are saying, what if he becomes a hammer? Then you just have to say that Almighty God is so in judgment of America that he has given us a dictator with a hammer. Some say, I've said it myself, I don't see much difference between uh, Obama's narcissism and Trump's narcissism. But there is one difference. Trump is seemingly able to humble himself in some degree, to some degree, under the mighty hand of God, where Obama thinks he is God. So, having said all that, God has set before us only two viable options as far as electability is concerned. There may be some third option that supernaturally gets raised up. I don't see it happening because I don't see America repenting. I don't see the church awake except in pockets. I don't see enough synergistic cooperation with the purposes of God to bring forth such a third option that could be life-changing. We are a divided country, almost 50-50. And there is no way in the human element for that to be tipped in the direction of righteousness and truth, especially when most of the church, please hear this, most of the church participated in all of the sins we're now trying to fight politically. Most of the church has been participating in abortion. Most of the church has been participating in fornication. Most of the church has been participating in pornography. Most of the church has been participating in crooked business deals and undermining of of the rule of law. Most of the church is guilty of all the things we're now trying to fight. A pocket of the church is genuine. A great, great number of the people of the church that claim to be the church are part of the problem. So I'm not looking for a third cavalry to come riding in from out of nowhere and supernaturally deliver us from the horrible option of Hillary Clinton or Trump. And of course, Hillary Clinton is no option at all. Here's my closing thought. Picture two roads in front of you. One is to the left and has a bridge that is completely out with a chasm below and there's no way across. The other path to the right is dangerous with pitfalls that could become almost as bad as the obvious one on on the left that is totally gone. But at least the one to the right now has some visible pathway ahead. Is there really a question which one to choose? If you say, I'm sorry, I cannot vote for either one of those candidates, I feel like I would be voting for both of them to vote for one of them. Other people say, If you don't vote for the one, you're going to guarantee the election of the other, and that makes you responsible. 
I hear arguments on both sides. I'll not settle that, that argument here. I'm not even asking you to try to settle it in your own heart. I want you to go to God and ask God, is Trump your Thomas Beckett? Is Trump your Cyrus? Or is Trump your judgment on America that will make Obama look like Abraham Lincoln? For the first time in my life, I became aware that I might not be able to vote in this election for president. I have been wrestling in prayer about it for months. My conclusions are offered in this message in hopes that it might help you come to a wise position. It seems completely clear that we cannot support a Clinton election, which would be nothing more than the extension of what we already have and have had for eight years. Father, as we humble ourselves before you, we ask for your will to be done through us, that your will might be done for us. Please deliver us from human reasoning, human arrogance, human emotionalism, human legalism. Deliver us from what might be a childish attitude that if I can't have my candidate, I will have no candidate. On the other hand, deliver us from what equally might be a childish attitude that says, I'll take, I'll take a, a Trump because I like his arrogance and I think we need somebody tough and rough that can fight their way through. There's danger in that kind of foolishness. I don't, I don't say for one minute, Lord, that you would bless that spirit of liking his arrogance. I just want your will. I want to be an instrument of your will. And I submit myself to you and to my brothers and sisters for correction, for challenge, for affirmation, whatever comes. Father, help us most of all stay awake and be aware that whatever comes, whatever happens, whether he's a Thomas Beckett or a rascal in league with the other side, whether he's your enemy or your tool. I know that I can't tell people what to do. I offer these thoughts in the fear of the Lord. And Father, I ultimately pray with King David in Second Chronicles twenty four fourteen. I'm in great distress, Lord. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But let us not fall into the hands of man. That's my prayer, Lord. Whatever that works out to mean, let us not fall into the hands of man, but into your hands. In Jesus' name. Finally, let me just tell you folks, cry out to God for yourself, and for your family, for your countrymen, and for your world. Whatever you do, don't become passive. Don't become self-amusing. And most of all, don't go AWOL from the war when you're needed the most. God bless you all. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.